Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 is our text. Starting in verse 1. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us today. We need you today. Some of us have come weary. Some of us have come challenged. Some of us have come from a good week. So whether we are in lack or full, help us to be content through it all. So God, would you help me today to be faithful to your word? And I pray for those that are listening, that they will be faithful in listening to it, God. That they would desire it as we desire bread and food. May our heart leap at your word. May we be like the deer, panting for your word, desiring God to be full. And so, Lord, would you help us today? Would you help me not to focus on man, but to love you in the preaching of your word? And will you help us, God, as your people, to love you in the listening of your word? God, and I pray for those that have not come to saving faith today, that your word will be a seed that falls on fertile soil today, that it would grow and bear fruit. God, would you radically save? Would you take someone from their sin today and bring them to faith? Open their eyes. God, for those of us who are of faith but yet have slapped, have, God, uh, not seen your word as sufficient, convict us, bring us to repentance and brokenness, God, for our laziness and our complacency. Help us, Lord, to desire your word, to feed off of it, because it is that which has given us life. We love you, Father, and we thank you that we have the written word of God. We thank you for the living word of God, Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Knowing Christ, being raised with him, and seeking things above is how we as Christians should think. But something switches at times when we think of the law of God. We're supposed to have a heavenly mindset, but when we think of the law of God, sometimes that switches. We are more apt to think about its consequences, talking about the law, and not its intent. If we set our minds on the law's intent, we will find joy in our observance of it. It would produce a love for God and a love for one another. Observing and obeying the law must not be ignored. There's an idea out there that we're no longer, we're free of the law. We don't need the law. No, we desperately need the law. 
So observing and obeying the law must not be ignored. Instead, we should seek what God has said in his word so we can know how to follow him. So before we attempt to carry out what God has instructed to us, we should ask today, what is the intent of God's commands for us? Why does God desire obedience from us? Why does God want you to obey? You ever ask that question? We, we often ask the question, you know, or actually we reflect and say, man, I messed up. I know what God's word says, and I ain't doing it. Right? Been there? If you haven't, altar call at the end maybe. <laughs> Why does God desire obedience from us? This is a really good question for us, saints. Does God need our obedience? Does he need our prayers? Does he need our worship like the gods and goddesses of Rome who will lose power if their people weren't praying to them? The answer, of course, from the God of the, our Bible, from the living God who lives, upon which there is no other gods, the answer is no. God doesn't need anything. So what is the intent of God giving us commands? This question is answered in our text today. The intent of the law precedes what is required. But in the Gospels, and even today, we see people who have made the mistake of not only putting what was required before the intent, they added to what God had commanded, which always leads to legalism and cold religion. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not coming here to waste my time. I'm not coming here just to play religion. I'm not coming here just to have fun. I'm not just coming here because y'all look good this morning. You're welcome. God is concerned with the heart. God is concerned with the heart's intent, which Jesus exposes here in our text. The scriptures, the rule God has given us, show us that any sacrifice other than what was offered on the altar of the cross is worthless apart from a love for God and God's love for us. So our points for today, I have three. The first, the law in verses one and two. The law in verses one and two. Second point, the lesson, verses three and four. The lesson, verses three and four. And then finally, the Lord in verse five. The Lord in verse five. So point number one, the law in verses one and two, our text begins today with Luke pointing out this event as happening on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a day of complete rest from secular work following six days of labor, which was established and modeled by God in the book of Genesis. However, the practice of the Sabbath went through some modifications over time. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was instituted by God as a holy day, this meant that one had to cease working, which meant that they had to work for six days and then cease working on the seventh. But in the intertestamental period, the period between the last book written in the Old Testament and the new, you had hundreds of years in between, the Sabbath day actually became legalistic. It took on more of a traditional practice than scriptural observance. Which is why you see Jesus in the New Testament addressing it and clarifying it. 
The true meaning of the Sabbath was lost. With this in mind, the disciples went to the grain fields, plucking heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands. And of course, like I always say, I'm from the city. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> you don't eat grain like that. I see it out there all the time in Amish, you know, country. But in the city, we don't pluck grain. What, what, what is that about? Right. What is it? <laughs> but I learned that rubbing the heads of grain was done to separate the grain from the chaff. So that they can eat the grain without the extra stuff that they used to throw away. It was legal for people to pluck grain from a neighbor's field and eat it. But Deuteronomy 23, 25 says you can't use a sickle when doing it. Because now you're talking about taking a lot of your neighbor's stuff. <laughs> right? So the law forbid it, but using a sickle, not plucking heads of grain when you were hungry. Plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath was allowed. But the Pharisees said it was unlawful. Somebody go with uh, me to Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11. Exodus 20, 9 through 11. Let's go there together. Exodus 20, it's in the beginning of the, your Bibles, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> God's word says, six days you shall labor. Exodus 20, 9 through 11. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So if it was legal to pluck grain from the neighbor's field and the law didn't forbid it. Where did the Pharisees get the idea that it was unlawful? The Pharisees who were experts of the law were saying that the law was saying it was illegal. Two reasons. First, it was a wrong hermeneutic of Exodus 20. The experts of the law got scripture wrong. Yes, experts can be wrong. And second, their tradition confused them as to the heart behind the law. Exodus 20 did not prohibit people to eat on a Sabbath. This meant that they could do what they needed to do to eat on that day. What the law did forbid on a Sabbath was communicated to God's people in the Old Testament. But there was a pattern in the Old Testament where at times it wasn't clear to them. Here's an example. Let's go to Numbers 15, 32 through 36 together. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. Numbers 15, 32 through 36 says, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And those who found him gathering sticks brought, brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. <clears throat> and all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. 
that, that's harsh, right? I mean, the brother was just gathering sticks. But why was the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath stoned? Let's go to Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3. Go to Exodus 35, 1 through 3, because it was made clear. Exodus 35, 1 through 3 says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Then he says, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So the man gathered sticks, it's implied, to kindle fire on the Sabbath which was clearly forbidden, clearly communicated. Yet the people weren't sure what to do. However, this is not the case with plucking grain. It was allowed, but without a sickle, and the law did not forbid it for the Sabbath. So where did their charge come from? It came from tradition. It came from what they added to the law. Remember that during the intertestamental period, the Sabbath day began to be legalistic. There were intertestamental writings that detail Sabbath restrictions. One is called the Damascus document, which was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. In it, it had regulations like not walking farther than almost 1,500 feet, which I was good with. I don't like walking a lot. I could do that. Not drinking outside the camp, drawing water into any vessel, wearing perfume was not allowed. I don't wear perfume, so I'm good with that. I know some of y'all are like, oh, snap, like, how do you, no, don't worry, I'm good. My wife tells me all the time I'm good. I think, you know what I'm saying? We got to talk then if that's not true. <laughs> Opening a sealed vessel was forbidden on the Sabbath. Assisting an animal to give birth, even helping an animal outside of a pit on the Sabbath was not allowed. There was other regulations that had nothing to do with the actual law that commanded people to observe it. The Book of Jubilees prohibited plowing a field, starting a fire, riding an animal, riding a boat. All these were additions to what the law said you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath from a wrong view of the Mosaic law? Their questioning Jesus came from a preoccupation with what was traditional, not what was biblical. The most frequently used Hebrew term for law is Torah, which occurs 220 times in the Old Testament. It's apparently derived from a root word used to mean direction, guidance, and instruction which the Pharisees do not seem interested in doing. They weren't seeking to give people direction, guidance, and instruction. Instead, they were looking to trap, criticize, and destroy Jesus. That's what tradition does. That's why when, and it can happen to us here, because, right, if you add anything to Scripture, it's tradition. It's man-made. But then what happens is some churches and some people out there, they get their Bibles and they get it right the first time, but then they're afraid, 
fear of control, controlling people, controlling church. Matter of fact, this happens a lot with offering. Right? So to become a member of a church, there's some churches that require that you tithe. We don't do that here. Why? Because the Bible doesn't command it. It's nice for y'all to tithe. It helps us. So no doubt, tithe. That's good. But it's not a requirement. God is not concerned with the quantity. He's concerned with the quality of your gift. And so there's pastors that fear offering is going down. And by the way, we're challenged this year, no doubt. But we're not going to use the pulpit to kind of like prod you to give more. There's churches that do that and even implement things outside of the Bible to get you to give more. What happens when people do that? Well, you lose the heart and intent of what giving was actually for. So you can have a prosperous church that has all this money, all these resources, but be cold. Losing the Bible is the final authority. This is what happened to the Pharisees. They lost the heart behind the law. The law was to be a guardian that gave direction, guidance, and instruction until Christ came, Galatians 3.24. The Pharisees did not have the heart behind the law to serve as a guide. Instead, they twisted the law by their own traditions. They did not guide people to the heart behind the law. They made the mistake of prioritizing imperatives over indicatives. Okay, so people that I disciple, I take them through Ephesians. Ephesians, if you study it, the first three chapters of Ephesians give us what's called indicatives. Indicatives are signs that serve to indicate something. So in the first half of Ephesians, you see all these things that Jesus did for you. How he chose you, how he loves you, how he predestined you. And you get this theology of how much God has done for us. Right? He did all this for me. And so Paul's enriching the Ephesian church with a bunch of theology to tell them, look at what God has done for you. And then the second half is what we call imperatives, commands. Then we find out what we're supposed to do. So you have the why, the theology, chapters 1 and 3 of Ephesians. Then you have the how, the practice, in chapters 4 through 6. The problem is that the Pharisees changed the two. They were so concerned with tradition and commands that they had no idea of the indicatives. They were too concerned about the practice and not the reason. That could happen here. That's why I use, you know, finances as an idea, the offering. Man, it's not about how much you give. It's, it's your heart behind it. They had lost the heart behind the law. They were far from the lawgiver. And Jesus goes on with the lesson that will deal with this problem in our text. He gives a lesson from the scriptures that will deal with their wrong view of the law and prove that the problem lies in not seeing Jesus for who he is. That might be your problem here today. And I'm just coming to church because I feel a little guilty. And I know people that go to church to free their guilty consciences. If you're here for that, you're wasting your time. Are you here because you know who Jesus is? 
You know that he's deserving of affection and glory. Have you come today to worship the Lord? Have you come because you have a joy for him and a desire for him? Do you hunger after him? If, if that's you, praise the Lord. If that's not you, we hope that by the end of this sermon, God's word is planted in your heart to have a desire for him. That's why we are here. But the Pharisees weren't there for that. So they needed a lesson to teach them what was wrong. Second point, the lesson in verses 3 and 4. And starting in verse 3, and Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? So first I want us to notice the use of the Old Testament scriptures. This is actually an excellent example of how to deal with questions and issues. Go to the scriptures. What does the Bible say? Right? A lot of apologists, they, they, they're so full with argumentation, it's just basic Bible truth that you can give somebody. That's what they need most, right? Yes. Jesus did this in our text. Many have made the Old Testament irrelevant due to ignorance and not reading it as much as the New Testament. But it's all God's word. J.C. Ryle said, he that strikes at the authority of the Old Testament will find at last, whether he means it or not, that he's striking also at the authority of the new. <laughs> Jesus references in our text David from the Old Testament to make the point that deals with the claim that plucking grain on the Sabbath was unlawful. And he references 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run. King David, he wasn't king at the time. He was anointed as king. He's on the run from King Saul, who sought to kill David because of his jealousy. David fought for Saul in Israel, but something happened in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Go there with me. 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. Starting in verse 6. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out, all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Verse 7. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. <laughs> so Saul tries to kill David with a spear. However, he missed twice, leading to Saul telling Jonathan, his own son, and his servants to kill David in 1 Samuel 19. But Jonathan, King Saul's son, loved David. 1 Samuel 19.1 says that Jonathan delighted much in David. Jonathan was the son of the king, yet he warned David to flee in 1 Samuel 20. So here's Saul trying to kill David, spears him twice, misses, and then he tells Jonathan and his servants to kill him. Jonathan then tells David, hey, my dad's trying to kill you. You need to go. And David flees. Saul actually found out that Jonathan told David to leave and actually to hide. And Saul was so angry at Jonathan that he tried to kill him with the spear. Like, this guy got a thing with spears. This guy you don't want to be around. 
So David flees from Saul. We see this in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. Jesus is noting this in verse 3 of our text. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him when they fled? Verse 4 of our text, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So David is fleeing from being killed. He has nowhere to go, but he went to the temple to find food. David was hungry, and those that were with him also needed to eat as they were on a run from Saul. So David, in, in this text, goes to Abimelech, to the high priest during Abathiar's time. Mark 2, 26 note, notes this. David asked Ahimelech if there was anything to eat. Then he asked for five loaves of bread and anything else they had to eat. Ahimelech told David that they had no regular bread, but only holy bread which is also called the bread of presence. Since no other food was available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle, which was only for the priests. So the bread of presence was made of 12 loaves of bread that were arranged in two stacks of six on the table of showbread. It was placed weekly on the Sabbath in the temple. The bread of presence was located in the holy place of the tabernacle and temple. And the Hebrew term for bread of presence literally means bread of the face. Bread of the face. It was consecrated and set apart, which means that not just a common person can come and eat of that bread. Leviticus 24.9 tells us that. So if the bread that David ate was only for the priests, David wasn't a priest, why was there an exception for David and his men to eat of it? And why is Jesus using this as an example for the situation he's in? The priest in David's situation had to make a choice. The bread belonged to the priest, but first and foremost, we have to remember that bread belonged to God. We forget that part. David was also belonging to God as God's anointed king and servant. The priest deliberated, then gave the bread to David to keep the Lord's anointed king from going hungry. So at first glance, one can say that this was illegal because the law stipulated that none but the priest could eat the consecrated bread. But the priest, listen, remembered the true intent and purpose of the law. What's the intent of the law? Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6 tells us. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6, now this is the command, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you fear the Lord your God, and you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus referenced this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four 34 through 40. 
The law was given to lead people to love and worship God and to love their neighbor as themselves. Again, our problem is we see the law as restricting us. What do you mean I can't? You can't. God says no. God says this. And for good reason. There's reasons why God has his laws and his decrees and not obeying and will produce bad fruit. So we see restriction. God is actually seeing freedom. You know, I use the example of basketball. Let's say we got rid of all the rules. That there's no lines, there's no fouls, there's no nothing. You can double dribble, you can do whatever you want. Would that be a sport you'd be interested in? We lose the sport. Well, let's have 10 people for each team going there. We lose the sport, right? The rules make the sport. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not going to pay no $120 to go and watch some fools play ball. That ain't happening. I can do that by myself. The rules make the sport. They make the game worth watching. You go by rules. When you sign a document for your insurance, when you drive your car, you live by rules. The rules keep things together. And we see God's law as not being able, it, it, we look at the law as restricting and not enabling us. That's a problem we have. And you know where that comes from? It comes from your selfish heart. I don't want God to tell me what to do. I want to do me. And doing me means no rules. And God has a funny way to break people, to get them to that place of need. So that you remember that these rules that God has given are for your good. Yeah. It's to keep your life together. To keep it from, from having no meaning. Meaning is created by rules. We need rules and we live by them and yet we look at God and say, no, you can't give me rules. The law was given to lead people to love and worship God. And to love the neighbor as themselves. The law's intent in our text supersedes ritual practice. Because to avoid the purpose is to lose the very reason for the law. The priest who gave David holy bread didn't break the law. Its intent superseded the law. That ritual. So it wasn't breaking it. God was actually implementing what the law was for. It was for love. It was to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It would have been very unloving not to give David and his men bread. And God was okay with that. Because God is not about cold ritual. He's about affection and love for his people. God allowed it because his anointed king was hungry and in need. God knew then that rituals and ceremonies commanded for worship were temporal. They would be fulfilled in Christ and God could supersede the ritual to bring about the loving act of providing for those who were hungry, which is the heart of God. 
The priest gave David the bread and Jesus uses this as an example to say, just as the needs of God's anointed king and his servants came before regulations and rituals, so the needs of King Jesus, the king of kings and his servants come before rules and traditions. The law's intent supersedes rituals and regulations because God is a loving God and desires obedience, not sacrifice. Which, by the way, he said in the Old Testament. God's not into your sacrifices. He's into your obedience. Sacrifice should be the result of obedience, not the other way around. Matthew's account contains an explanation that Mark and Luke do not record in our text. If you go to Matthew 12, 5 through 7, there's a section there of the same event that Matthew records that aren't in Mark and Luke. Matthew 12, 5 through 7, he goes on to say, Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, again, I desire mercy and our sacrifice, you, will, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus is telling them that in the law of Moses, the priests on duty in the temple were able to serve David what he needed and remain guiltless. So if there was an exception for David, God's anointed king and his men, how much more God's only son and his disciples? Jesus is greater than the temple in all of its rituals and observances. Jesus, in Matthew's account of this, again quotes Hosea 6.6. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, it's not about the rules. It's about your heart. So if God is saying, don't do this because this won't go well for you and you do it, it's not doing it. Sorry, that, could you say that again? Oh, see, Siri, you're bugging. You're bugging, Siri. You're bugging, Siri. I rebuke that. You did say, say it again. That was good. I like that. See, that that's not about the enemy, because I have my phone up in my office, so that wouldn't happen. Happen with my watch, man. That's I rebuke that. But. In other words, again, we're losing the heart of God. We're losing the heart of God. Because if the intent of his law is to produce love for him, and I see it as restriction, I'm going to do everything I can to do what I want to do over what God is telling me to do. Does that make sense? That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119, I wasn't going to go there, and actually it's just coming to mind. Listen, let's go to Psalm 119 together. Psalm 119, man. That, that's, I want the same heart he has. Starting in verse 1. Blessed are those who weigh is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. 
then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Does this sound like somebody who feels restricted? I delight in your statutes and your commandments. Is that us today? That's the intent of the law. The intent of the law was conformity, to be more like Jesus. Love fulfills the law's intent, which Jesus did perfectly for us. So desiring steadfast love is what God wants, not sacrifice. A loving knowledge of God that produces sacrifice will always supersede the observance of rules. The lesson here is that as David and his men were giving the bread of presence so that they would not go hungry, Jesus, more significant than David in the temple and his men, could eat because God through Jesus was working. Their need to be fed superseded ritual and regulation. Mark 2.27 adds something that's not in Luke and Matthew where he says... In Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So if the Pharisees knew who Jesus was, but they have asked this question and accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law, no. If they knew Jesus to be Lord of the Sabbath, they would have known that Jesus could do whatever he wanted to on the Sabbath that he instituted. Jesus is definitely Lord of the Sabbath, and they missed it. They missed it. Our last point, the Lord in verse 5. The Lord in verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Period. If only the Pharisees knew who was before them. Jesus claimed divine authority in calling himself the son of man. He also said this openly to claim deity. He's saying that he's God. He's the one who instituted the Sabbath. This is a title that Jesus used to address the reality of who he was in the scriptures. It describes the role of Jesus as a man who was served, but also references Daniel's vision of the son of man as coming with judgment and authority. Go to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 is where he's referencing the title Son of Man. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This vision provides what the Old Testament had claimed about the Son of Man. 
but will come with dominion and glory. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm the son of man. He also used this with the paralytic. If you remember in Luke 5, 20 to 24, he references the son of man title to say, I can forgive sins. He's proving that he's the one that Daniel spoke of. It's the same here in our text. That's what he's saying. The fact that Jesus could say that one is greater than the temple is here is an admission that he's God. God is telling them that the priests were guiltless and that it was right for David to eat of the bread of presence because it reflected the heart of God. The law intended that those who seek to obey God should love him and love others. By fulfilling the intent of the law, one can move from ritual and obligation to desire and motivation to please God. The heart and intent of the law were meant to produce a mindset and a life of obedient saints. It comes from knowing Jesus as the lawgiver, as the son of man who has dominion and power. The law points to the lawgiver who sent his only son as the law fulfiller who would not destroy the law but fulfill it, declaring rest for his people when he said, it is finished. Do you believe it is finished? you believe that the work has been done for you? Do you believe that what he did on the cross is sufficient to forgive you of your sins? If not, you're working a life trying to please God. Well, I don't pray enough. It's not about how much you pray. It's not. Man, I don't know the Bible like you do, Pastor Lois. I don't read it enough. Well, then read it then. <laughs> What's wrong with you? It's right there. We got Bibles upstairs we can give you. Your problem is you don't see Jesus as who he is. Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. He is God. He's alive. He's alive. You know... I trip sometimes because sometimes I think in terms of like, what if he was right here right now? How would I act? Oh, man, I'd be super spiritual then. <laughs> if he was right there. But I read a book that made the point. Jesus said, it's better that I go for you so that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. So he is here. He's in us. And we act like he ain't here. That's your problem with sin. That's your problem with like struggling and doing things you're not supposed to do. Because you don't really believe he's here. You don't really believe that his law is good for you. We've all made that mistake, by the way. We've all acted like Jesus is not enough. The Pharisees missed this lesson because of being all about tradition and law keeping. They were going to church every Sunday. They were fasting twice a week. They were giving tithes of all they got, yet lost. John Stott pointed out a situation that Calvin actually faced in 1534 about attending the Roman Catholic Mass. John Stott says this, a discussion had arisen on the Lord's Supper and Calvin, having his Bible before him, said, Here is my mass. And throwing the hood of his cloak onto the table and raising his eyes to heaven, he exclaimed, Lord, if on the day of judgment you hold it against me that I never went to mass and that I left it, 
I shall say, and with reason, Lord, you did not command it. Here is your law. Here is scripture, which is the rule you have given me, in which I have not been able to find any sacrifice other than that which is offered on the altar of the cross. Church attendance won't save you. Giving money won't save you. He did everything. So instead of looking at God's law as rules and restrictions, look at it as freedom to do what God has called you to do. It's not to gain favor with God. God is not impressed with how much you said no to sin. He's not impressed by that. He's God. What he desires is that when we do see sin, we say no because we love him. And when we do sin, we go to God and confess our sin because he loves us. Amen? Amen. So you're loved. That's the intent of the law is to make us more like Christ, to transform our sinful hearts into loving hearts that beat for his glory. This is possible because the work is complete, which is what he wants, which the Pharisees missed in our text. They complained about grain. They complained about the Sabbath. They had all this tradition, but were lost. This one song I love is called Jesus Paid It All. It says this. And when before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I have a clean record before the Lord. Do I fail at keeping his law? Yes. But I rely on the one who fulfilled it absolutely. So his law is not diminished. It's not taken away. Jesus didn't come to destroy it, but he came to fulfill it for us. So if you hear me say here today that being a Christian means all these rules and you have to follow all these rules, yes. But when you do break them, and you will, rely on the one who fulfilled the law completely. The law says I shouldn't be cheating on my wife, no doubt. The law says a lot of things I shouldn't do that are good. It's a good thing for me to be faithful to my wife, to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's a command. That's good for me. But I'm not perfectly loving my wife. There's times where I should treat her well, and I don't. There's times where I should be doing the dishes, and I don't. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I ain't get a lot of amens from the dudes here. Dishwasher, no, bro. Got to do it by hand, by hand. If you do that, when you get married, bro, you show some love right there. You know what I mean? You take your time. <laughs> These things are good for us, saints. They're good for us. Psalm 119, I should delight in his precepts. It should be a delight to serve him. It shouldn't feel like a restriction. That's what God is after. And his disciples were enjoying a meal on the Sabbath because the law didn't forbid it, and the Lord of the Sabbath was with them. 
So I hope you were encouraged today, Saint. Let us pray today. Father, we thank you. Help us to be those that do commit to your law, but not in a legalistic way, but in a way that serves to love you more as you love us.